our economy as a country. Um, so yeah, what a time to be alive. And I'm really excited that we're having this conversation. My first question um, that I'd like to direct to our panelists is, you know, what is the one word um, that you would use to describe the budget speech? And as you think about that, I'd also like your thoughts on, do you think the speech deviates from um, the austerity nature of the 2021 budget speech or does it reinforce it? Duma, I'll start with you and then I'll ask TD for you to go next and then Cheryl. Duma? Yes, thank you very much for inviting me to this um, exciting um, spaces. Um, just to answer your question, um, Letiwa, is that um, I was in a panel earlier on with um, at NEDLAC with the community constituency and one of the economists said he sees this budget as a holding operation while the government um, tries to sort out its debt problem. Um, it won't be addressing any of the um, the problems that we're having as a country in terms of economic growth, in terms of employment, um, and so forth. So the government has decided that the people must just wait while they sort out this debt crisis. Um, does it um, continue with austerity framework? Yes, it does. Um, I'm just looking at the statistics that were done by an economist called Dick Forsland. Um, health budget will decline over the next three years by 11.8% after taking into account inflation. The edu basic education budget will decline by 7.1% after taking into account um, inflation. Social protection, 12.9%. And the total social wage, which is those three items together, um, is 8.1% decline. So the finance minister was saying, no, we spend 59% on the social wage, but he doesn't say that um, the, the allocations towards the social wage um, will be declining over the next three years. In terms of does it reflect SONA, it's yes and no. I searched the, the SONA, the president talked about the social compact um, that will be done in 100 days. There was no reference to that in the in the in the in the what you call it in the budget, but there was reference to some of the things that the president talked about: the extension of the social relief of distress grant and the presidential stimulus package at a combined cost of about 53 billion rands. Um, so, it's a, I think it's a mixed bag on reflecting the sauna. But for me, just my last comment, and before I let others talk, is that you know you know when when I want to see what impact the gov the budget has, I go to uh, a table there that shows what is the economic growth forecast. The budget is forecasting economic growth of 1.8%, which is woefully inadequate given the challenges that we face um, over the next three years. It doesn't, so there is no plan. There's nothing in the budget that will address what they call is inclusive growth, um, employment, and so forth. Yeah, so those are my initial comments to answer your questions. Thank you so much uh, for that response. TD, I'm going to ask you to go next and maybe in your reflections as well, um, I guess, think about the word that best describes the budget speech um, in light of, you know, young people and what young people need. So what we needed to hear as young people, what what's that one word that comes to mind when you think about the budget speech? And similar to what I asked Duma as well, if you could also share whether it deviates from austerity as um, seen in the 2021 budget speech or does it reinforce it? Tidi? Thank you. Thank you so much um, for this opportunity. I'm really looking forward to hearing um, insights from all the other young people about this budget. Um, so for me, like one word that really describes this budget is disappointing. So although we have a new minister, it's still really the same austerity story. So there are budget cuts to every area of social spending except the social like social grants. So austerity does continue. South Africa is experiencing, and I'll just like reiterate um, what Duma had been saying that you know South Africa is experiencing slow economic growth and high interest rates on our debt. So the government is responding to that, in, at least with this budget, by paying for this interest using social expenditure, and that really disadvantages young people, like South Africans in general, but especially young people. Um, who are often permanently excluded from economic participation. Um, if you consider inflation and growing learner and health user bases, the department 
Um, the departments have been allocated less money to spend on paying nurses, paying teachers, meeting education and, and meeting education and health needs. So yeah, this 2022 budget really does reinforce the austerity nature of um, the previous budget, which is quite concerning as a young person. Thank you, Tidi. Uh, Cheryl, your thoughts? Hi. So please just direct me if I um, if I go off path because I have heard very little of what's been said so far. My connection is really bad. I don't mind repeating it, Cheryl, if, if that would be fine. Yes. Like if you come. Yeah. So, um, so the question that we've put forward is, what is that one word um, that comes to mind for you that describes the budget speech and as you respond just think about it through the lens of um, what it, what the budget speech means to young people and if it responded to the needs of young people um, as part of that question do you think that the budget speech um, deviates from the austerity nature as seen in the 2021 budget speech or does it reinforce it I hope um, that question makes sense Yes, that question makes sense. I think the budget is deeply disappointing. So forgive me for the two words, but I felt that disappointing needed qualifying. I think for young people, there is a lot of not so great news. As the IEJ, we're disappointed by the policy direction. Uh, we think that it enforces a, a policy of austerity. And so this now becomes the norm. Um, the minister's decided to continue fiscal consolidation. He's using austerity measures rather than pro-growth macroeconomics. Um, and this comes at the expense of well-being for so many South Africans. This is despite the fact that the government has more revenue to work with than it, than it uh, predicted. Um, and it's driven by greater demand for commodities. It's likely that this will continue. And so this budget, we think, is a, a lost opportunity to take meaningful action on our crisis of poverty. We heard uh, those, those words from the president in Sona, uh, but the budget didn't match that. Um, and we think it's important to restore people's confidence in the government. Yet Treasury's decided to prioritize the interests of bankers. Sure. Thank you for that insight. Um, I'd just like to ask um, the panelists, um, I'll start with Cheryl, and then we can go to Chidi and Duma. South Africa is a country that faces many socioeconomic challenges. Um, I'd like to ask, what does the budget say about the government's strategy to address these challenges, if there is one? And, yeah, what do you think the priorities are um, this year? Uh, Cheryl, if you don't mind answering that, just basically... Um, what do you think the government strategy is and um, what do you think the priorities are? So I'm not sure that there is a clear strategy at all. I, one of the, the biggest opportunities was to make... Sounds like um, current level, current level. moving it upwards to the food poverty line at least, and possibly looking at ways to get to the upper bound poverty line. Thanks very much, Cheryl. I think there was a bit of a disconnection there, but we just caught the end of uh, what you were saying. Um, GD, if you don't mind going. Okay, thank you. So, um yeah, it, it is true that, you know, we're a country that faces these, these um, deeply concerning socioeconomic challenges. And um, maybe in answering this question, I'll touch on like two perspectives. So from a global perspective and then from like within the South Africa, right? So globally, South Africa forms part of the international covenant of, on economic, social and cultural rights. So it's one of the state parties that forms part of that. And there is this body by the UN called the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights um, that monitors the implementation of this. So that really speaks to socio making, you know, alleviating these socioeconomic challenges in the country, right? Um, so they had they've had meetings and made recommendations to the government. So urgent recommendations and then also um 
you know, like, you know, based on time, some of them urgent, maybe some of them to be recognized within a certain ter- t- time frame. And um, the government has recognized um, and noted that. So I was in a workshop at the beginning of this month where the government outlined some of the plans of the different departments were outlining their responses to it. However, in this budget, nothing, like there was no mention of that um, and no- noting any of that, like, um, yeah. And like, furthermore, in, like in addition to all of that, is that the committee has stated that if a country is experiencing financial distress, um, so like we are with like very low growth and um, e- growth, economic growth, and among other things, um, if a country is experiencing that financial distress and the government seeks to reduce spending on socioeconomic rights, it must fully justify these measures and it outlines the criteria to justify these measures, right? And they must demonstrate clearly that these cuts were based on a transparent and participatory human rights impact assessment, which demonstrates, and I think this is very important for South Africa, that these cuts will not increase inequality and they will not undermine people's access to social services and quality of those social services. But so it is clear even in the budget speech that the government does take note and acknowledges um, some of these cuts to social spending, particularly the wage bill, the social wage bill, so for teachers um, and nurses and healthcare practitioners, but there's no mention or doesn't reflect how this will not increase inequality or undermine people's access to those services. And then the budget also, yeah, which is, to reiterate that word, is I've disappointing what Cheryl was saying deeply disappointing and um, South Africa's government from a local perspective also has a legal obligation to realize the human rights that are listed in the constitution and these cuts to expenditure without explaining or like you know reiterating that without demonstrating that it won't increase inequality and undermine the access to these services is actually like cuts to basic health, education and health expenditure of this nature is actually unconstitutional. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Judy, for highlighting um, the importance of those things. I'm missed by the president and his cabinet. Uh, Duma, I may ask you go. I'm wondering, like, kept on losing you. What, what is the question again? My apologies. Um, the question is, what does the budget say about the government's strategy to address socioeconomic challenges, if there is one, and what do you think their priorities are? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so the major, obviously, challenge that we have as a country is the unemployment, the poverty, and the inequality. And we've got 77.4% youth unemployment rate, which is staggering, if you think about it. And um, I was, um, so I don't think there's an appreciation of the scale of the crisis. For example, this, there's two sides, the scale of the COVID crisis. Um, at the beginning, you talked about saving lives and saving livelihoods. But um, we didn't save lives. We had a very poor public health response. And we didn't learn from other countries that were quite successful, mostly in Asia, in containing this uh, pandemic. And we lost 300,000 lives on a per capita basis. I think we were somewhere around 13 or 14, uh, according to The Economist. Um, In terms of livelihoods, we didn't save livelihoods. Um, The the government announced this 500 billion rand stimulus package, but according to my calculation, um, only about 100 billion rand was spent and about 26 billion rand was spent was spent by the government. So 19 billion in the worst crisis in a century, the additional government spending was only 19 billion rands. And if you for, for context, this past year, um, the additional spending that wasn't budgeted for was higher than that. So in the middle of the crisis, the government could only cough up an additional 19 billion rands, and um, all the other um, expenditure in terms of the stimulus package didn't come from the budget. It came from the the TERS program, which was financed by the UIF, and it provided about 60 billion rands to people who were temporarily employed, and the rest of it, 20 billion rands, was this gigantic failure of a 
loan guarantee scheme from the banks, which was supposed to provide 200 billion rands, and it ended up providing about 18 billion rands. So there's no appreciation of the scale of the crisis. Um, over the past 28 years, our GDP per capita has increased by 16%. Uh, by comparison, Malaysia in local currency terms is 654%. Um, since December 2008, uh, the global financial crisis, we had, the number of unemployed people has increased by 6.5 million people. And we have this incredible unemployment rate of 46%. So I don't think it, it understands the scale of the crisis. You know, someone was saying that it's an aspirin. They're prescribing an aspirin to address a, to address a migraine headache, you know. So, um, yeah, I don't think it and recognizes the scale of the crisis that we're in. Yeah. Thank you very much, Duma, for painting that picture and actually highlighting the scale um, of the crisis that we are facing. My next question to you would be um, around the infrastructure development, something that every year, and I guess you've already said, it doesn't really sound like there's a serious plan behind um, the problem, but uh, can you just answer the around infrastructure development? Is that something that the government mentions every year, and like, does it make you confident that there's a sound plan behind it? Okay, yeah, Kukon, I've been following this one ever since they started talking infrastructure. So the government started talking infrastructure long before COVID. In September 2018, President Ramaphosa, we had a recession in the first two quarters of 2018, and he says he's going to start a 400 billion rand infrastructure fund. In 2019, um, February, the budget, um, the Treasury said, no, um, we're going to do it. It's going to be 100 billion rands. It's over 10 years. So every year since then, four years, the, the government has made an allocation to this infrastructure fund, and they they cancelled it throughout the year. So last year they made an allocation of 4 billion rands and they cancelled it. They said they had to pay the public service wage bill. So basically where we are right now is that um, there is no money in this infrastructure fund and the government has made a provisional allocation of 18 billion rands and I don't think they're going to spend it. So now the government talks about this infrastructure-led investment plan but and all these investment summits, but the fact is... The major cause of the collapse of total investment is what I call a public sector investment strike. Since 2013, um, investment, government investment has declined by about 36% and state-owned companies by about 56%. So that is, the, that, is, that is the challenge that we're facing in terms of investment and infrastructure until the government... Um, and they always announce these plans. You know, every year the number changes. They say, we've got a pipeline of 100 billion rands. And then you look the previous year, it was a pipeline of 600. The previous year to 700. And they almost forget that they were the lies that they made the previous year. And it's my hobby just to follow these lies. And I write about it quite a lot here. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say, Smonelo, is that these um, investment summits, um, I, it's another hobby of mine. I follow... What the you know a lot of these projects that are announced is old projects that the companies had announced before. It's not new projects, you know. Um, so it's just about I don't know. It's government is taking us for a ride in terms of these infrastructure plans, and every year the infrastructure doesn't come up here. Thanks, yeah. Thank you, Duma. Before Thank you, Duma. I open up the floor, um, I see that Cheryl has just joined us. I know that she was having issues with the connection, so I'm not sure if you'd like to have a go at that one before we move on, Cheryl. Sure. I, I certainly reiterate what Duma has said. Um, I think when we take a look at the data, uh, it really is quite telling of, of the government's planning um, we heard a lot about the master plan process in Sona, almost nothing in the budget um, with a focus on revitalizing the manufacturing sector. Uh, so industrial policy is now being reduced to a regulatory tool as opposed to a strategy for interventions for building capacity and capability in the manufacturing center, sector. So 
South Africa is continuing its deindustrialization process. Budget allocations in this space are inadequate, and they're premised on an outdated conception of the of the public-private partnership model. Um, it's consistently failed to deliver, um, and and yet. It, despite those development outcomes, there's this dogged commitment to to say we're going to try again. Of the 227 billion that was allocated to economic development, uh, just just over half of that was allocated towards economic regulation and infrastructure, and then only 39 billion, about 25 percent, went to industrialization and exports. And so, what what does that say about the stated intent versus? Uh, now putting the tools towards finding solutions. So whilst infrastructure development is critical to realizing the manufacturing center, sector and stimulating the economy, it's premised on public-private partnerships, um, despite the fact that their value has declined. And we haven't in the last decade seen a substantial project in the uh, public-private partnership space. Um, and so, yeah, they erode our capacity, um, and it really is puzzling that that the government remains committed to this. Yeah, thanks, Cheryl. Um, I'm going to open up the floor, and um, I see that we've got some new people coming in. If you would like to make a contribution. Um, to tonight's conversation, please feel free to request to speak and we will give you the floor. You can also pose questions. Um, I almost missed Umatiji, so, so before I move on to my next question, I'm going to give you a minute um, to also answer the infrastructure question and then we can move on. <laughs> I thought I was off the hook for the infrastructure one, um, but sure. Um, so I think... I, I support both statements um, by both Cheryl and Duma. I think those are in line with where we stand with the BJC. Um, I think from generally though, uh, like budget specific, the public investment in infrastructure has increased in this budget, including in health and education. And it's one of the few areas of spending that grows in line with inflation. So we do welcome those changes, welcome that considering the necessity of infrastructure and realizing health and education attainment, right? Um, but if you look like specifically into that, we just came out of, you know, COVID and this is a post-crisis uh, budget. And with the COVID pandemic, there were a lot of backlogs, um, backlogs of suspended infrastructure projects um, and these infrastructure allocations in the budget don't really address that. Like they don't, they're just increasing in line with inflation. But what about, you know, they don't reflect a, an urgency to fix the huge infrastructure challenges that persist, especially as learners return to full-time schooling um, amid COVID-19. And I think that's the same with healthcare um, infrastructure. The spending also increases, but just in line with inflation. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think going back to the thing that Uduma mentioned about there not being an appreciation of um, the scale of the crisis that is COVID-19. Um, I'd like us now to turn to education, and I'm so glad that you brought it up, Matsudi. So, so just to give context before I pose my question, right? Um, basic and higher education were obviously affected by the pandemic. Um, when commenting on the teaching and learning process of 2020, which is when the pandemic hit, um, Prof Gustafsson raised a red flag um, of the, the, the full impacts of the pandemic, right? And he said that it would only be evident 10 years from now. Um, and that's because the biggest... I'm not sure if it's just me, but I think we may have lost Dimpo. Yes, it's Gustafson. Yes, um, but thankfully I do have the question um, in front of me and what she was about to refer to where Prof uh, Gustafson spoke about, you know, the, the learning loss um, that we experienced in the country um, during the, the, the pandemic. Um, you know, where learners at a foundation phase were really affected um, by, by, the, by the pandemic. 
And then also another thing to note is that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of young people, as a result of the of the of the loss in education, young people didn't. Have, there was no clear catch up strategy for the learners um, who had fallen out. As it stands, we currently have nine point eight young people who are not in employment, education, or training. Right. So if you think about that number, you think about young people who dropped out of school due to the effects of COVID-19 and the, the absence of um, of a catch-up plan. You can imagine how big that number will grow of young people that are not in employment, education, or training. With all of that in mind, as well as actually another point to add, you know, to this picture that is acting as a backdrop to the question, at higher education, we know that young people face various challenges from not having the funding to complete their studies. We have learners who have historical debt and are not able to get the certificates and their qualifications. So with all of that in mind, how does the budgets solve these realities? How does it speak to um, the learning losses that we experienced due to COVID-19? How does it speak to the absence of a catch-up plan? How does it speak to the challenge that young people face um, at higher education institutions? I'm going to start with, oh, I was going to start with Matidiso, um, but I don't know if she's still in the space. Oh, she is. Um, Matidiso, if you could please go first to respond to that question. Um, and then after Matidiso, I'm going to ask Cheryl and then lastly, Duma. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll be brief so that we can give, um, so we can hear inputs from the floor specifically with this question, because that's very interesting um, to me. So I think the budget itself, like, does actually surprisingly recognize the impact of the spending cuts on learners, schools, and communities. And they've actually gone as far as to say that projected funding for teacher compensation will result in fewer teachers and increased class sizes in some provinces. So that is actually like in the budget narrative. Um, so they do recognize this. But, you know, reductions in spending of, on basic education, which are like about 2.5% in real terms over the next three years, will have detrimental effects on basic education um, and, like, you know, the ability of government to provide equal and quality education for all learners. Um, yeah, failing to allocate funding for basic education without considering the increasing learner enrollment, without considering inflation, that jeopardizes the provision of school, of like school essentials, like providing teachers, textbooks, furnitures, um, and safe infrastructure. And so essentially it delays the immediate realization of basic education. So I do agree with the prof saying that we'll really see the impact the full impact in 10 years. But I think even with these budget cuts, um, the government's response in a post-pandemic or transitioning into a post-pandemic era, like we can, we're already starting to see the delay in basic education attainment. And also I think it's important to note that it's not just an issue of budget allocations. I think all of us in the space are aware of the weakened state capacity, corruption that have eroded government's ability to plan and spend money that's allocated to it in the annual budget. So underspending, irregular expenditure, wasteful and fruitless expenditure, those are really consistent issues in basic education sector and they undermine the government's ability to provide learners with their constitutional right to basic education. Thank you. Thank you, Tidi. Um, Cheryl? Yeah, thank you, Tidi, for that analysis. Um, I, I really, in terms of positioning the right to education in its constitutional obligation, uh, I think this is really a, an area of state failure. Um, and at a household level, when a child struggles in uh, in a household that has means, typically a tutor may be hired, extra books may be hired. Um, it may be that one or both parents are able to allocate some of their time to assist that child with homework um, and, and make sure that learning gaps are met. But when a, a household is under-resourced, when both parents have to work, if they are even 
both parents, uh, uh, many of the, the children have been orphaned. Um, and so the, the child from the most vulnerable household really is so rel reliant on state resources. Um, and in an education sector where real spending is going backwards, even if I just think about the food poverty line and um, the allocations to, to uh, the, the feeding scheme in schools, uh, where children are reliant on on the school to be able to get some kind of food on a daily basis. Uh, what will food inflation do to eroding the, the the amount of nutrition that a child can receive um, in the in the school feeding scheme? And so I I really when I think about what I would do for my child in a situation like this and the resources that are now not available to poor households. It really is a sobering state of affairs in terms of where we're going with, with education and with our budget. Um, and then the other one lens that stands out to me is the impact on women in the household. So we all know that as soon as COVID hit, women were really deeply affected by suddenly having to be in the home uh, take on more care work in terms of domestic work, but they were then teachers suddenly to their children. Um, and so now with those learning lapses or the, the increase in learning poverty, um, where are those gaps going to be filled? As we all try to get back to some level of normality and everyone tries to get back to work, unless there's extra support, it really is very difficult to see how children in the poorest households will be able to close that learning poverty gap um, Oops. Yeah, I think Cheryl is struggling with um, her connection. Hopefully she can rejoin us again. Progressive about the way we think about education solutions. Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, we caught most of what you said. Um, there was a bit of a disconnection there, but thank you for your contribution. Duma? Yes. Um, so as I said, the budget, the basic education budget declines by about 7% in real terms over the medium-term um, expenditure frame, three-year period. And then the post-school education and training, it actually increases in line with inflation. And we see kind of large increases in terms of higher education infrastructure, 27% increase. But um, I just want to talk about something that I feel strongly about. I, I believe that we should take profit out of all education. And um, I believe in free tertiary education. And I was writing an article about this, doing some research for it last year. I mean, last year, and I discovered that, you know, the NESFAS and um, and the, what's it called, the other one, the National Research Foundation, the only about 63% of, you know, we've got the so-called free tertiary education, but it only provides, 63% of people at universities and TVET colleges don't receive any state funding. So I believe that we need to um, find a way to increase, I mean, to make tertiary education free and take profit out of education. Um, so I worked out how much it would cost to do this for the whole country. It's, it costs about 78 billion rands in new money to make it free. And I believe that is um, an investment that we should make in our future in terms of providing free tertiary and also free basic education to the people who still have to pay for education. And then I just want to, there's a statistic that just shocks me is that, um, there's something called the tertiary enrollment rate. In South Africa, it's about, for African people, it's 18%. This is the people between 18 to 23. It must be seen in, in, in the context of that neat, the not in education, employment and training statistic. So it's 18% of 18 to 24s are, are in tertiary education. And it should be seen in the context of the high unemployment of 77.4%. Um, and um, in South Korea, the number is 95% um, of 18 to 25-year-olds. So there's, in this article that I was writing, they talk about three types of tertiary education schemes. Um, an elite one has got an enrollment rate of about, um, like the one that we have, I think it's a, lower than 20%. And then we have to have, so we have to move towards a mass system of tertiary education, where we provide of, for, about, for more than 50% of people um, having access to um, tertiary education, and then higher to reach the benchmarks in the rich countries of above 75%. So I believe that we have to take the whole education system, um, I mean, the whole, whole population 
upgrade the education levels of the whole population and not an enclave system that we currently have, an elite system of higher education. And so I feel strongly about taking the profit out of education. There's no room for profit in education. It's about building big, good citizens. And then the last thing I want to talk about, I feel strongly against this discourse that says that universities and Tibet, I mean, are there to teach people skills. I believe companies are there to teach people skills. Um, um, you, you learn skills in companies and then you, you become educated in higher education. That's my view. And um, just to use an example is that, um, you know, they've stopped the in the UK. You don't need a degree to study, to become, a, I mean, to, to, for training to the chartered accountancy firms. In South Africa, you need an honours degree. So the chartered accounting firms, they teach you how to, become a chartered accountant. It's not the job of universities to teach you how to become a chartered I don't know if I'm making sense, but I'm just saying this thing about mixing the role of education, which is to build good citizens and skills development, I think is a bit of a confusion in South Africa. And people being told that you're learning useless courses in arts and whatever, that's nonsense. People must learn whatever they feel like learning and we mustn't force people into areas where they're supposedly going to get jobs, you know, Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that point, Duma. Um, yeah, you've shared valuable nuggets, um, thought-provoking points, and, and I think this is what excites me about the space, that people's perspectives really challenge the way we think. And just on that note, I really would like to encourage um, everyone in the space to request to speak, to ask a question, to make a comment. Um, as well as to pose your question in a tweet by, and tag us. And on that note, actually, um, one of the listeners in the space, although I'm not seeing him at the moment, um, Zolani, Zolani, if you are in the space, maybe you can request to speak, to expand on what you've tweeted. Um, but Zolani says on the point of infrastructure-led growth, he's saying that it's difficult to believe anything on infrastructure-led growth um, with the various challenges that exist. Um, and it's also, you know, especially when there's no clear strategy on how these failures can be tackled. He cites um, challenges at a municipal level, um, you know, factors contributing to municipal grant underspending um, limited, for instance, limited or absence of integrated thinking and planning and poor project management, weak uh, multi-year budgeting, um, you know, speaks about the, the, the challenge with regards to um, the railway, the railway um, system in our country. And so I'm, I'm just keen to hear your response to that um, comment by Zolani, him saying that it's difficult to believe in infrastructure-led growth when there are various challenges that we see. Um, Duma, I'll ask you to go first and then Cheryl. Um, I think Zolani knows, knows about, about this about more than this I more do. Than I um, do. Um, um, but but, but, but he's right. He's right. Mm, there's quite a echo, Let's do a please meet yourself. Hello? Sorry, sorry about that. Okay, so I think Zolani, I was saying Zolani knows about this more than I do. I could, I was impressed about the knowledge that he has. Um, but what I'm, he's right, our rail infrastructure has collapsed completely. And we need to start from scratch and um, building like inter um, mass transit on rail. And there's so many areas in our society, also in energy. Um, we need to, uh, the maintenance, I mean, in maintenance, um, in terms of our electricity and so forth. And I actually believe in public electricity as opposed to the for-profit model of electricity. And um, that's another debate for another another time. But you're right. We are, Our infrastructure in all areas, has to, we have to almost start from scratch, from water to electricity to so forth. But what I object to is the financialization. What the president was talking about in the SONA the solution is to financialize everything. Um, if there's a problem in school infrastructure, if you remember, he was going to create a PPP, um, uh, some kind of um, blended finance with public and private, 
to financialize school infrastructure. I don't, I think that is bizarre. And um, as Cheryl was saying, over the past 20 years, the biggest flop in terms of infrastructure is those PPPs. Every time consistency, you look at the budget, it's, and then acknowledge it in the, racist, in the latest um, budget review that these things have been a complete flop. But as Cheryl was saying, they want to continue trying to fix things that haven't worked for about two decades here. Yeah. Thank you for that, um, Duma. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see if Cheryl's still in the space. I know she's been having some challenges with her connection. Um, Cheryl, if you are in the space, may you kindly unmute yourself? Although I cannot see at the moment. Okay, I see your request to speak. Um, Cheryl, please go ahead, if you can. Okay. Cheryl, um, may I ask you if you could please unmute yourself, if you can, um, and maybe what, yeah, there we go, go ahead, please go ahead. Sorry, I didn't hear the last question. Um, so the question really is, is, is your, uh, the question is about your thoughts concerning what Zolani post-tweeted, um, where he's saying that it's difficult to believe anything um, related to infrastructure-led growth. Like, it's hard to believe in infrastructure-led growth when you consider the many challenges that we have with our railway um, system not functioning in the way that it should function and other challenges, for instance, like um, municipal grant underspending where you're seeing weak multi-year budgeting and so forth. So he is not confident that there can be infrastructure-led um, growth when there are these challenges, especially also can where there's no clear strategy on can how. You hear me? Yes, I, can you hear me? Could you hear me reiterate the question? I think there might be a problem. Um, although, Zimbali, I see you've. Um, just asked to be speaking, you are now a speaker. I know you were close to with Cheryl, so maybe you might want to chime in. Zimbali, um, are you able to share your thoughts on the point? Yes, I actually have a question. Sorry, you breaking, so I, I couldn't hear what that you were calling me up. But uh, my question is around the issue of public debt. I was in an engagement with the Deputy Minister of Finance today and he kept emphasizing it. And this is the crux of um, the fiscal strategy adopted essentially and why cuts are being extended, that we are in an unsustainable fiscal position. And so uh, I just wanted to ask the speakers to reflect on that and for some of us who may not be familiar to to tell us how how do we fix this issue? Is it really an issue? Um, are we in a debt crisis, or are we looming, are we approaching a, a debt crisis as the media says or the discourse says um, in the public? And if so, how can we address this? So yeah, those two those are my two parts of the question. Sorry, I can't come in on the. On Sherilyn's question, but I, I can check on her if she's struggling to connect or what. Thanks, Mbali. Um, do I'm going to ask you to tackle that question first, and then Tidi, you can add your thoughts. I'm not sure if it's me, but I do. I cannot hear you at the moment. I had mute. I forgot to unmute myself. Sorry. I say this is one that I feel strongly about because the idea that we have a debt crisis is propaganda and fiction. Our debt to GDP ratio is just under seventy percent, and it is not high by international standards. It is not high by um, emerging market standards. 
And I have to suspect that there is an agenda to this fear-mongering around debt. You know, um, they need to have this debt crisis to push this political agenda of privatization. Because when you say that the government is broke um, and there's no option but to privatize and give the assets to the private sector, I cannot see any 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 rationale for um, for this um the, um the agenda for this um what's it called debt fear mongering the idea that a government can get broke when we have a central bank that can provide whatever finance we need to um the only constraint that we really have as a country is inflation will there be the available resources to produce the things that we buy if you understand what i'm saying so but we've got a central bank we've got a vast public sector balance sheet at the Public Investment Corporation um, of about, it's got assets of about 2.4 trillion rands. We've got foreign exchange reserves of almost a trillion rand as well. So I don't understand why people believe that. And even if our debt was high, austerity is not the way to reduce the debt. Um, I struggle with this because the national budget doesn't work like a household. If we spend money, if the government spends money into the economy, it grows the economy, it creates jobs, and it creates the income to pay for itself. I don't know if I've answered Zimbabwe's question. I was a bit too emotional about this one because I don't know it is coming at us from everywhere. Every journalist asks you this question. I don't know where they get it from that we have this debt crisis because you can show them all the numbers. Say, no, Brazil, India, all the countries at the same level of us, they've got higher level of debt. No, no, but we have a debt crisis. We have a debt crisis. So I think it's meant to immobilize us and get us to give everything to the private sector in a billionaire's auction. It is incredible. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for that, Duman. I guess we should have more of these kind of conversations to really um, interrogate that perception. TD, would you like to add your thoughts? Sure. So I'll definitely, I think Duma's completely covered the the political. I completely agree um, with him. I just think, yeah, I, I will not be able to add further to what he's so eloquently um, reflected on. I think what I maybe will speak to is the, maybe the real problem that we're having is almost like a, either we pay for well, we're paying for the interest on this debt using public expenditure or social spending, like money that should be going to paying teachers, to getting textbooks. Some of it actually has to go to paying for this um, debt that, you know, that plagues that's around like in the newspapers. Everybody's reflecting on that. Um, so I'll also just say like what I've learned in my short period here this year is that the interest, so the debts that we have, um, Having debt, and I think um, Duma has reflected on that, like having debt isn't really a problem as a country, but the real problem, well, I'm like sim oversimplifying it, but um, the real problem is like repay repayment of that interest. So the debt servicing cost, which seems to plague uh, South Africa, you know, which is plaguing Treasury. And I think that's on the top of Treasury's mind on how to resolve that. Um, this also could, you know, is a problem, but then on the one hand, like, it is a problem, but also most of our debt is, you know, like we're borrowing all the debt we owe it to um, South Africans. So our debt is in rands, right? And so I think that maybe this is, and another time we could have a really uh, good conversation about the central banks, um, you know, the central banks policies and how maybe, you know, I think it started a little bit last year during the pandemic. It was like, oh, but um, the Reserve Bank, come on now, you know, like also play your part. But I think they've taken a largely conservative um, response to debt. Um, but they could theoretically um, come to come forth to the table and help resolve this problem instead of that problem being solved by, you know, the majority of South Africans who rely on healthcare and on on public health and public schools you know like people didn't choose we weren't involved in in the decisions that led to that so i i think it's an unfair burden to be placing solely on um the you know the majority of south africans thank you thank you so much sorry jimbo go ahead 
Thanks, Letiwe. Um, so, and thank you, Duma, I think, for um, touching on the debt issue so passionately. Um, I think one of the things that we've been talking about, especially since the pandemic hit in March 2020, is the need for um, better um social security in South Africa, right? I think the numbers like 46% of people in the country rely on some kind of social grant. And to build from that, we then started having conversations around the universe, universal basic income grant um, and whether or not this is the time to start looking into that and investing in it. So if we don't have a debt crisis, why do you think... Um, the government has been trading so carefully when it comes to talking about um, implementing a basic income grant in the near future. Maybe I'll start with you, Matidiso, and then we can ask Duma to come in. Sorry, I think my connection cut out a bit. I'm not sure if it was on my side, um, but I, I take it you're asking me a question. Can you please repeat it? Can you hear me? I can hear you clearly. Can you hear me? Because I can I hear you now, yes. My side, okay. So I was just saying that um, now that Uduma has touched on the issue of debt, right? Um, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about, especially since March 2020, is the Universal Basic Income Grant um, and the need for a safer social security system in the country. So if we don't have a debt issue, why do you think the government has been trading so carefully when it comes to talking about a Universal Basic Income Grant in the near future? So I definitely cannot speak um, on behalf of government. Like I'm not really sure about their rationale. From a personal perspective, I support a, a basic income grant. Um, and I think that the Institute of Economic Justice has proposed ways to fund that. So I think Zimbali and Sherilyn can speak to that. Um, so there are ways to fund it like outside of taking out more debt. Um, you know, like it doesn't have to get there or even you know this year with the budget we saw that there has been like a tax windfall and yeah just ways to restructure um the way that you know south africa is struck is uh, like the south african income is generated you know like companies and corporates have been having you know like have had great relief this year and i think they've also been reflecting that this has been a good budget for them but i think there is definitely a weird um, pitting of the two things of like, oh, we need to have this, oh, we can't have this um, universal basic income grant because of debt, because of all of that. But there are actually proposals that, that you know, that can speak to that um, and show that actually we don't need to take out even more debt because there are ways to fund this. Um, yes. Um, can I answer this? Um, during the week, I'm launching a report on the Universal Basic Income Grant. So the version I have is that it should um, be at the phased in over three years at the food poverty line of 624. Let me first talk about that number of the 46%. Well, if you look at the world, the International Labour Organization, the percentage of the world's population that has at least one social protection measure is about 49%, the percentage of the world's population that has got access to one, at least one social protection benefit. Um, in um, Australia, it is 82%. In Japan, it is 75%. In Mongolia, it's 72%. New Zealand, 66.6%. South Korea, 66%. And so what I'm trying to show is that that 46% figure is also fear-mongering to make you think that something is wrong with our country when countries like Japan, which are highly industrialized, have got very generous social security systems and spend far it in excess of us. In terms of... um, I'm not sure if it's just me. Sorry. Duma, you back? Can you hear me now? Sorry, yeah. Yes, I'm back. No, I'm just saying that this 46% as well number is propaganda because I was just citing some of the countries like Australia, Japan, which are like 75%, 82% of their population have got access to at least one social protection benefit. Now, my version of the basic income grant is that it should be phased in at the three poverty lines. This is at the food poverty line of 624 for year one. The, the next poverty line is the lower poverty line of 890 year two. 
and the next poverty line of 3,035 in year three. And then that's for people aged 18 to 59. Then I said, what would happen if we also extended it to children? So the child support grant is 460. And I said, let's increase it to 624. So the child support grant becomes the basic income grant. So if you're a family, if you're a lady, a woman who's got three children, um, you will get three, after three years, you'll get three grants for 3,900 and one for yourself as an adult. For four thousand two hundred. So then I said, how much does this thing cost? Um, net new money. It would cost three hundred and sixty billion rands over three years to implement this, and this is after a clawback from the taxpayers. Um, um, and um, there's also a stimulus effect on the economy. And so it would cost one point eight percent of GDP over three years. Now, if you discover it would eliminate poverty in three years. If you discover that you can eliminate black tax for only 2% of your income, surely most South Africans would decide to do it. And when you look at those things, I, unlike the IEJ, I had no taxes paying for this thing. And I said, we just spend the money. And it doesn't increase our debt ratio because there's a stimulus effect on the economy. It stimulates local economies in the townships in Tembisa, in Cape Flats, and the, there's, a, there's a clawback from taxpayers, there's VAT payments, and I worked out that two-thirds of the money would eventually come back to the government in, in the short term. And over the long term, most of the money will come back to the government anyway. So I'm this, I'm, I will share it with you once we finish the report in about a week, and we're launching this week, and I'll share it with all of you as to how to fund this basic income grant. But we have, as a country, um, so, so yeah, as a country, we really have to do something about this crushing poverty in our country. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Duma. Um, I'm just going to ask Cheryl to share her thoughts around the basic universal basic income grant, and then we have one last question um, that we'd like to pose to the panelists before we wrap up. Cheryl, what are your thoughts uh, with regards to funding the universal basic income grant? Thank you for that. Um, I look forward to your paper, Duma. So the IEJ has uh, submitted different rounds of pathways to the UBIG. So at this point, there is no question that the UBIG can be done. Um, and it's not necessary to cut expenditure. Our models involve new taxes. Um, they are wealth tax, so that's the one uh, the one component, a luxury VAT tax and a social security tax, which allows a clawback. So uh, if a social security tax gets levied on the entire working population, those who fall below the stated threshold would get a tax rebate. Um, and, the, and so the, the taxes would... Oops. Have we lost Cheryl? Tending to be going as a country. And so I, I think it is down to political will. Um, and I think, I, I think the president is committed to the institution of a basic income grant. But I think he's probably surrounded by a lot of players who are... Cheryl, I think we've lost you there, and I think you're about to conclude on your point. Cheryl, can you hear us? ...reasons that it must be done, the lead uh, of which is, is being focused on at this point, but I think it, it boils down to a constitutional commitment to deal with uh, a rising, uh, or the obligation to deliver a rising floor of socioeconomic rights. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I really... I. I challenge people to get involved um, and to help us move the movement forward. Um, it's been fantastic to engage with the president, um, and I think we it would be it would be better for us to to increase the volume. Uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I really appreciate the the call, the charge for us to be involved. Um, Zimbali, I, I saw that you had requested to speak, but. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that because I see you're still a listener. 
um, please do request again. And whilst you do so, I'm going to pose the closing question, which is, where do we go from here? Um, you know, the minister delivered the speech yesterday. Where do we go from here? What is next? And how can young people meaningfully um, have an impact towards the next steps in, in the budgeting process? CD, I'm going to start with you, and then Duma, you may go next. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll also be like quite brief. I think the way forward is continue, um, continued activism and just calling out um, the government on its austerity. I think that they have for many years, especially, you know, like with the uh, Dito era, um, just denying it and saying it's fiscal consolidation. But the facts speak for themselves. And, you know, if we, you know, as, if we continue to anchor ourselves in the truth and continue to propose our solutions like we actually know how to do this um there are small gains but like you know it's it just reminds me of i think like the fees must fall times where it seemed like you know nothing's happening and things are still moving slow like you know where we haven't realized that attainable higher education that we should that we should have but you can see there's now movement and conversation around and the president has announced like really rethinking how we fund it. And I just think that activism, even though, you know, you know, if we put pressure on the government, um, is it's really taking advantage of us being a democracy and continued pressure and having the facts to back what we say. I, I really think we can push in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm going to leave it on a more optimistic um, note. Yeah, and leave it to the other speakers to, yeah, just reflect on that. Thank you. Thank you, Tidi. Tuma? Yes, I, I do think I agree with Tidi. It's about activism. And um, I think the government is under more, the Treasury, let me just say that the government, the Treasury has never been under such pressure to change their policies. They're on the back foot every day responding to the criticism because since the start of this pandemic, as I think Cheryl was saying and Tidi was saying, people have come up with, so, there's been a proliferation of alternatives, costed models as to how to change this trajectory, this disaster scenario that we are on as a country. You know, I looked at um, scenarios like we're at this 46% unemployment. And I said, listen, to talk about the scale of the crisis, let's say we get the 6% GDP growth. What is it going to do for us? Um, and then I did scenarios for unemployment until 2030. This is going to depress you. So with GDP growth, we are going to still have, sorry, with the current scenario, let's say as is scenario, low growth, we're going to have 17 million unemployed people and an unemployment rate of more than 50%. And then with GDP growth, um, we're going to have um, unemployment rates coming down to about 34%, and there'll still be 11 million unemployed people with GDP growth of 6%. So we have to do more than just grow our economy. We have to create public employment like you haven't seen. So what I'm working now on is the whole issue of a job guarantee, which is, I believe, the flip side of a um, universal basic income guarantee. So that is my what I'm committing myself to this year to look at into as well. Yeah. And you know what? The people who are objecting to the basic income guarantee and they're saying we want jobs, not grants, they're also going to object when we say, no, let's have a job guarantee as well, you know, they'll find another reason to object, you know. But anyway, that's my parting, that's my parting shot, yeah. Thank you so much, Tuma, for that. Um, Cheryl, your your thoughts on uh, where to from here and how young people can have an impact on what's next post the minister's budget speech? So I think, um, again, some of the formal structures that are available to us are now responding to the budget. Um, and I think it's, as civil society partners, we are able to coalesce around a really clear call for a young unemployed person in this country. The options really are now very few. Um, and so the rhetoric, the rhetoric around the government recognizing the issues is one thing, but what are the solutions? It, it really is very important now. So um, my, my recommendation would be our submissions to the Minister of Finance following the budget should be very clear. Um, yeah. 
that's that's as far as I've gone in thinking about that one. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> you may go ahead, Letty. Sorry, Jimbo. I was just saying thank you to Cheryl. Mike, over to you. Cool. Um, yeah, thanks, Cheryl. Uh, thank you, Duma and Matibi. So I think, sure, you guys have really helped us to, um, I think, number one, just contextualize the budget itself, but then also what it ultimately means um, for young people, right? I think a lot of us listen to the minister speak and we're often just so intimidated by the, la- the language, um, but also the big numbers that we're here. So it's always so important to break it down and understand like what does it mean for an, a young person right trying to navigate the situation in the country right now so thank you so much for sharing your insight and your analysis with us we didn't even get through all of our talking points because there was so much to say um but yeah thank you thank you guys thank you to the people who joined us in the space the people who've been tweeting us duma we're gonna hold you to that paper that you're launching this week and